at any rate, uh, at any rate, um, <laughs> at any rate. Yeah, I was just <laughs> failing there. Um, <laughs> Words to twist. <twirl. laughs> Don't make fun of him. He actually had to have a dialect coach come in for Han Solo. So. <laughs> His name was Ray Fox. <laughs> Greta Gerwig, Francis McDormand, Scarlett Johansson, Harvey Geitel, F. Murray Abraham, Tilda Swinton, and Yoko Ono for whatever reason. What was Yoko Ono? She was the assistant scientist. Oh. Yeah. Which should have been pretty clear because her name was assistant scientist Yoko Ono. Yeah, that was weird. That was weird. <laughs> This movie's kind of fucking weird that I... I like, <laughs> this movie's kind of fucking weird, if, if right? I could... Welcome into Film Tank. The weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we discuss the new Wes Anderson film, which is Isle of Dogs. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hello there again, everybody, and welcome in to episode 150 woo, woo. of Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman, along with my usual co-hosts, Nick Cheney and Toussaint Egan. Hi, Alex. It's great to be here. I'm really excited that this is our 150th episode. I know. I feel good about this. We're going to have a really great discussion. Excellent. Hey, guys. I'm here, too. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) Why did you do this? Anyway. You can really see the improvement we've made from episode one to episode 150. I've improved. Well, you yeah, weren't you were on here episode, for the episode one, so oh, fuck you. if you didn't improve, that would mean you you were dead. Oh, whatever. I'm just don't. saying, like that's the only way to like go from there is to like just be deceased. Anyway, Alex, <laughs> what's on the docket for today? Um, well, let me get my train of thought here again. Choo choo. Yes. Pull it into the station. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to derail this conversation. Man, I feel like we're doing the Murder on the Orient Express episode all over again. <sighs> oh man, that would be fun. <laughs> to do the episode again? Yeah. <laughs> well, now we know who did it. <laughs> you already know who did it. Uh, so the film we are talking about is Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs. Ah, that's a really fun play on words, right? He definitely loves dogs. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. Even though he kills them in like every film of his. But it's because he loves them. All dogs go to heaven. Sure. Yeah. No. Not all dogs. Okay. I'm just saying. That's out of, a, that's out of a... the two I have, de- there's at least one of them is definitely going to hell. <laughs> oh my god. He knows who he is. Oh. Niles. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
So before we start off with anything about this, and there's plenty of uh, things to talk about with this film and racism, if you want to go there. <laughs> but how about the idea of a literal washing of a black dog to turn him white? That is interesting. I, I didn't. I, I didn't know how to feel about that. It was like, I, I I didn't think it was. I thought it was like hair dye to make his coat shinier. That was intended for spots. To be fair, have you cleaned a dog like that before that happens? Like their coats just change. <laughs> like they become yeah. jet black. If, if a dog hasn't not jet black, but if a dog hasn't had a bath and they have that kind of white fur. Mm-hmm. That they are a different color. Hmm. I'm just saying, like when they're that big, if they're yeah. tiny dogs, then no. But yeah, I, I'm not saying it's whatever. But yeah. I was kind of just making a I joke. Yeah. but and actually, it makes sense given the relationship of one character to another character. Oh. Which ones? Well, would yeah, those his be? identity is hidden, so to speak, because yeah. he doesn't know his own visual yeah, makeup. I, I, right, I, right, I yeah. understand. I was yeah. trying oh. to make a funny about racism. Yeah, that's okay. It's okay. Yeah, I no, get you, man. It's not okay. Why? You can't joke about racism anymore? Let's talk about the Isle of Dogs. I thought we were. We are. Yeah, we are. Uh, So the Isle of Dogs, directed by Wes Anderson, uh, stars Brian Cranston as chief, and then also Koyu Rankin, uh, the voice of Atari. And then you have other standard... Uh, Wes Anderson uh, voices here, including Edward Norton, Bob Balaban, Bill Murray, Jeff Goldblum, uh, Greta Gerwig, Francis McDormand, Scarlett Johansson, Harvey Keitel, F. Murray Abraham, Tilda Swinton, and Yoko Ono for whatever reason. What was Yoko Ono? She was the assistant scientist. Oh. Which should have been pretty clear because her name was assistant scientist Yoko Ono. Yep. I didn't. Didn't catch that? No, I didn't. Okay. Yeah, that was weird. (laughs) <laughs> that was weird. Okay. Yeah, she hasn't really been it's in the news like, ever since John Lennon. So. She like hasn't Wes, been in the news. It's it's like Wes Anderson only knows Japan through pop culture. I yeah. think that's probably accurate. I mean, he you'd think that he would have like actually made a, a trip to Japan at some point in his very long illustrious career, maybe met people, like talked to people, done some he probably scene. did, but the problem is that it was, you know, all took place in the span of one montage set to the Kinks. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Very good. So before we uh, dive in and discuss the loving island of dogs, um, we haven't discussed any Wes Anderson films on this podcast ever in our previous 149 mm-hmm. Uh, which is pretty surprising since Wes Anderson is one of Nick's favorite filmmakers. He is. Although he has lots of favorite filmmakers. Uh, Wes is towards the top. He is. I will say we're going to get into that too in this episode as far as where he may or may not stand after just this movie alone. Oh. And I say that as someone who generally still loves him. Yeah. But, you know. Anyway. A tease. (laughs) So, anyways, uh, I just wanted to talk more about Wes Anderson in general because um, he is a very... Idiosyncratic. Yes. Interesting, idiosyncratic. Esoteric. Somewhat... Quirky. Kitschy. Polarizing director. Yes, absolutely. Um, Who's turned off quite a lot of people uh, at certain points in his career, but I feel like... 
he's made a bit of a turn in terms of his filmmaking over the last three films. I th- uh, Moonrise Moon- Kingdom was still kind of on the edge of that. Moonrise but... and Grand Budapest, from what I've seen of Wes Anderson naysayers, have turned quite a few people. Mm-hmm. Not so much where they like his previous movies. I think it's his most mainstream appealing film. Yeah. But they admit Grand that Budapest the did. things yeah. that they normally don't like, they fully accepted that they loved those quirks and whatnot in those movies, Grand Budapest especially. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Well, and I guess I'll say because it was weird because um, I went with my parents to see Rushmore in the theater when I was. Whoa. I know. So I don't really remember much about it. A lot Um, of hand jobs. Yeah. Wow. They talk about that a lot. They do. Yep. So, you know, that, and that was, However many years 1997. ago. 1997. I know. I was only 10 years old, so that was inappropriate. That's really weird. I know. Like, it's not... So, okay, really quickly, <laughs> I just have to say this. So, what's weird about that to me mm-hmm. is that there are movies that are, like, adult movies, which I kind of understand why you might take your kid to it, even if I think you're crazy and mm-hmm. disagree. Yeah. Because they're only adult in the content, like, oh, there's a nudity scene, or there's a language scene, whatever. <laughs> But when there there are other movies that I call like adult because I just don't see how a kid would even want to sit in the chair and watch it from start to finish, right. and that that is definitely one of those movies where uh, I would just be very surprised at or not I'd be very interested in taking a little microphone to little Alex and say, "How did you enjoy the show, little buddy?" Uh, yeah, I, I I don't think I loved it when I first, <laughs> but there are some things in Rushmore that are, are funny for for oh, a yeah. little ten year old Alex, but at the same time. Um, I, I think a lot of the humor in, in that just flew over my head. Yeah. I will say, though, um, I like early Wes Anderson in his middle of his career. I don't like most of his work. And then later, I, I've been a huge fan of him. So the middle of his career being everything after Royal Tenenbaums? Yeah, pretty much. Like Life Aquatic. Darlish. Have you Lemonade. seen that? I've seen parts of Life Aquatic okay. and Darjeeling, Darjeeling Limited, but okay. I've never sat down and watched the whole thing. But what I've seen, I've been like, meh. <laughs> um, and I've seen Fantastic Mr. Fox and thought it was quite enjoyable. So, yeah. But that was... Which I'm sure will come up in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I will say just overall, because I'm not the biggest Wes Anderson fan, I think that he's, in my opinion honed his craft in a way that has made it more digestible for the mainstream viewer, which maybe his diehard fans don't care for, but as someone who is, or at least views themselves as a somewhat mainstream viewer when it comes to this kind of uh, content, I appreciate it because I've just enjoyed his last three films more than the previous three. So He's sort of like art house, like niche comedies. Slice of life, whatever. You know. Yeah, but I feel like the other thing about it, and I feel like just the way that his dialogue moves through. I mean, the Grand Budapest to me is pretty much a masterpiece. Oh yeah. Um, the dialogue in that film is fantastic. Also, too, um, Wes Anderson's way better with an R rating, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, with exceptions. I, I think. Yeah. I think his. His whimsical sort of nature of his films mixed in with R-rated comedy provides a really 
interesting um, final product. Yeah, and that's yeah. No, I'm for sure in the sense that I I agree basically. Mm-hmm. But I do think Fantastic Mr. Fox for me is the exception to that rule. Uh, whereas, I guess this is this was rated R. No, it wasn't rated R. Mm-hmm. I couldn't remember if they were saying the F word or not. They were not. Like I know it wasn't like super kid friendly. I mean, they kept on saying the word bitch. But that was more... That's a female dog. Yeah. yeah Plus, they said that like once, twice. Twice, actually, yeah. Maybe three times. Uh, <laughs> anyway. You uh, were saying? No, like, that's pretty much all I got. Oh, okay. uh, basically, uh, what I'll expand on later, which is that I think Fantastic Victor Fox works specifically because his whimsical nature fit that storybook, uh, picturesque critter world perfectly. In fact... He really didn't change anything about himself because in that movie he makes the animals say "cuss" instead of what they would. So it like worked on both levels too. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah. So overall, I would consider myself a fan of Wes Anderson, but not a super fan in any way. I'm not running out to see his films opening night. I'm not buying them first day they come out on Blu-ray. But at the same time, I, I enjoy watching what I've seen from him so far for the most part. So Tucson. I have to say, yeah, I'm I'm actually not actually that big of a fan of Wes Anderson simply because I haven't seen a lot of his films. I think you have to be white to like in a in a, in a personal. Yeah, he's like. What was what was the? Uh, I'm only half joking. What was it that I said like last week? Is that like I heard somebody describe Wes Anderson as like, like Tyler Perry? Tyler Perry for white people. I'm just like, I guess I can see that. Yeah, yeah it's like. It's, very sort of like niche towards like Wes a Anderson one movie. demographic, one racial demographic. Wes Anderson movies are basically dear white people if he took the title literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That being said, um, of the of the th- the three films that I've I've seen, well, actually, only two of those I actually remember. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Nick. You said four, three of which you remember. No, I've, I've seen, I mean, excluding this one that I've, oh, I've seen. Oh, I yeah. gotcha. Um, I've seen Grand Budapest Hotel, which I very much enjoyed, and I've seen Bottle Rocket, which I also enjoyed. Not That's as much one. as Grand Budapest, but I did eh? get, I did like both yeah. of those films. Um, yeah, he just seems like this kind of director that has his own like established visual style where he uses, um, if not like these very built, like archaic, kitschy sort of like color palettes and 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 built sets he kind of uses them as backdrops or like tableaus and colors and stuff like that um he's got very weird sort of um offbeat humor oh yeah and also very questionable human relationships uh between characters and how that sort of like dovetails into the drama i think that uh, Nick, while we were watching Isle of Dogs, you were talking about how, like, the high schooler, like, why is the high schooler have a crush on this 12-year-old boy? Yeah. And I just turned to him and I said, like, because it's a Wes Anderson film. And I knew enough about Wes Anderson to know that's No, the tr- but then I fought you on that. Really? Yeah. Oh. We literally had a conversation. You were like, oh, we'll have that conversation later okay. when we're talking about Isle of Dogs. Okay. No, I mean, Wes Anderson has a long history of involving, I don't want to say children, but... Like teenage to I mean, he's late in, teens. Well, he's he's very interested in dysfunctional relationship, but that's not what that was. Okay, that was a cute crush with the couple gets together in the end type thing. Rushmore is literally about a fifteen year old in love with their adult teacher, and she very uh, rightfully so 
degrades him and tells him why that's the creepiest thing ever, and he knows nothing about life and her and whatnot. So th- that is that. Th- those are two different directors who made this movie and that movie, in my opinion. Mm. Not aesthetically, but something is happening. Yeah, inside his heart. Okay, maybe his brain. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, I like him enough from what I've seen. Yeah, Nick. Yeah, I'm a huge Wes Anderson fan. Um, I'm also probably one of the first people who will make fun of him, too, because uh, he is exhausting sometimes. Uh, I I always love Wes Anderson because my first favorite movie of all time when I was 15 was Rushmore, mm-hmm. and when I bought that, and that's how I got into the Criterion Collection. So, like, as someone who grew up watching all of his films and, of course, revisiting the ones that I had missed at that point, uh, I, I'm in love with what he does behind the camera. Uh, he's got a million blinders, and uh, I also think that that's also what makes him good at what he's good at. Mm-hmm. Like, the very reasons why he can be annoying, obnoxious, and uh, nearsighted is also it's because of that meticulous tunnel vision of him uh, just trying to craft what his vision is. And I don't think anything he's ever done, including this movie too, uh, is is egregious in its, uh, um, I don't know, mono vision, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, I got to say that I don't really begrudge anybody who doesn't like him or any of his films because they are aggressively... Uh, I don't want to say unique because that's too cute, Mm. uh, but they're very much aggressively niche. Yeah. Niche and not caring about the battle between style versus substance. Um, and I say that as someone who thinks there's a lot of substance to a lot of his films, but you're saying that on, on average, these films are more, I just don't think he ever cares if the style always overshadows like he would rather you dig for the substance Mm -hmm. but he wants to wow you from frame to frame with that meticulous uh aesthetic from like that's clearly what he's more carried uh uh, cares about especially because he changes uh script partners from like like you can just trace the 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 distinct periods in his life Mm -hmm. for example i think the scripts he wrote with owen wilson are his best scripts yeah um and really, all, I think all the scripts he wrote with uh, the people he uh, directed, so like the scripts he wrote with Owen and the scripts he wrote with uh, Jason Schwartzman uh, were his best scripts. And I feel like now that we're in a different era where he's writing most of them, I don't know who wrote this one, but um, he's at least lately has been writing them with uh, like Roman Coppola. Um, yeah, he was involved in this also, Jason Schwartzman too. Jason Schwartzman was? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well... And that I can see that as far as dialogue and whatnot. Yeah. But um, I don't think he's written a script with Owens either since the Darjeeling Limited. Or... Sounds right. Okay. So that'll always – I felt like Owen brought a sort of humanistic streak that Wes Anderson lacked in his immediate mm-hmm. uh, regime as a director. But at the end of the day, he still makes extremely enjoyable films that are just a treat to look at and a – just a pleasure to dive into. When you describe it like that, like the way that I visualize a, a Wes Anderson film, and this may totally just come out of left field, but I always imagine it like a a very ornately decorated cake that has these like because that's what I think of with with his color palettes in general. Like they're very faded. They they have like a lot of pink. They have a lot of blue. They have a lot of like just 
Like very, no, and very he even he I think like, makes fun of that idea with yeah. the Grand Budapest Hotel and yeah. those cakes. I mm-hmm. mean, like he fucking milks those shots of those cakes. Uh, he loves those cakes. That, yeah, well, I was gonna say, as and considering as a director, he's never been a foodie, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Like some director, literally, like Babette's Fe- Feast or whatnot. Like those are movies that are, you know, Tampopo or, yeah. you know, like he doesn't care about food. He cares that a cake is one of the only <laughs> dishes that you can construct. Uh, you know, by you his think? color palette, by his color palette, and by an actual uh, rigid uh, polygonal structure. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks exactly how you want it to look. Yeah. Speaking of that, in the Grand Budapest Hotel, when uh, they're delivering the weapons from Mendel's to the prisoners, and they're yeah. cutting up all the bread and the yeah. sausage, and it's all very bland-looking, the color is very brown and gray, and then you get to the Mendel's box, and he opens, it's just this beautiful pastry, and then it's like, it's fine, there's probably yeah. not a bomb in there. <laughs> and it's like shaped like the hammer. Oh my god. <laughs> no, for sure. Um so, yeah, uh, we'll get to the movie pretty much now. But in mm. general, I, I absolutely love him, even if um, I might maybe be a little harsh on him in this particular episode. But mm. in, maybe that's only because I do really love him. So uh, I'll say this. With it, for the longest time, um, because when I was born, I was contractually obligated by the devil to only have favorite directors with the last name Anderson. Uh, for the longest time... Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and him were like tied as my favorite director, but I can unequivocally say that if I chose one today or within the last few years, it was always pretty much leaning towards Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm-hmm. And I think for the most part, it comes down to one simple fact, which I'm only saying this to illustrate what I'm feeling about Anderson, Wes Anderson, which is that uh, if Wes Anderson is a filmmaker who refuses to grow, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, in my opinion, is someone who refuses to make the same movie twice. So I, uh, that's that's really where, if I have frustration with him in later day projects, that's where it stems from. Not necessarily with the content, but with the inability to make enough new ripples in his delightful cinematic pond. Yeah. So. I could see that. So... Talking more about Isle of Dogs, uh, it is a film set in Japan where... Um, Wait, what? Set where? <laughs> I couldn't tell. <laughs> set in Japan that follows a boy's odyssey in search of his lost dog. So I already mentioned uh, most of the actors that you'll see here. Well, here, here. Uh, also, two that I missed... Here, here. Here, here. <laughs> also, two that I missed are Courtney B. Vance, who has mm, a cup, cup of coffee as the narrator. And Leif Schreiber, who shows up as the voice of Spots. Leif Schreiber just has a fantastic voice. He does. That so. was a, I couldn't believe that he hasn't been in a uh, Wes Anderson movie until that point. But it's good. It was, good it was a good casting call. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. especially in a pivotal character that really only appears later in the film. So, yeah, really liked that. So, uh, I start us off. So, I guess I will continue on mm-hmm. with talking about uh, this film. Please. Um, I quite enjoyed this, even if I did not love this film. Um, I, I thought this just kind of was a pretty typical Wes Anderson fair film for me. Uh, in terms of the way I felt about it, this is like on the same level as Moonrise Kingdom. It's something where I felt like the film never did anything that made me go, oh my God, this is a great film, but also never lost my attention at any point. Uh, I thought that there were great moments uh, from start to finish throughout this entire story. Uh, however, 
as I as I already mentioned, like there are parts of this film that I don't want to say were infuriating to me, but made me just a little bit not sure about the direction that this film went in. Um, the colors and the way that a lot of the shots throughout this film uh, continued on, I feel like were great, but they were super inconsistent through here, which is something that has happened in Wes Anderson's career. But I feel like it was more consistent through some of his previous films, where here it seemed like we had them in certain moments, and they had beautiful moments throughout the film, uh, specifically when Atari is reading the haiku at the end and you see all the leaves falling from the tree. I mean, that was just, to me, breathtaking. But at the same time, uh, I feel like we had a lot of... In, Again, it's a film that I'm sure took a lot of effort to make. Uh, but at the same time, me as the viewer looks at it saying, I feel like there were a lot of scenes that were just kind of bland. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think to comment on that, mm-hmm. something to look even deeper at is like, how does one, so I'm, but not a rhetorical question, but how does one feel about the animated scenes every time they switch to a CTV yeah. Where that's, that's not no longer stop motion. Was that I mean, did you guys think that that was like inconsistent in the sense that it just kind of broke the reality or like it was too cute for its own good? Or did you guys think it was consistent because Anderson is fond of this kind of Russian uh, doll, whatever. Mm-hmm. Matryoshka uh, doll sort of. Like, yeah. Of uh, going through that land, like with Grand Budapest and switching aspect ratios and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I thought that it happened enough times that I was led to question as to why is this not a, a two-dimensional, like, traditionally animated film versus a stop-motion animated film. Not to say that I don't like the stop-motion animation, yeah. but it's just it, – it, it happened enough times where I just felt like you're just cutting corners. And it's like it, and, and it, it, it re- resembled the art style enough where I was just asking, is like, well, why don't you just kind of, like, do it that now? Yeah. 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 Uh- I mean, I honestly just think it's because it's cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. Which I can understand. That way you're not filming an entire scene just to have it show up on a, you know, four inch box. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. But um, a a lot of the scenes I thought here were really, really great, but a lot of them um, just weren't that great for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I will say my biggest critique of this film was the extraordinarily inconsistent uh, way that the dialogue is presented to the audience uh, um i feel like i was on board for the idea because it's actually spelled out for the audience for you stupid people out there saying everything that you're going to hear is either going to be read by an interpreter or spoken in english or is going to be given in subtitles which and all barks have been rendered in yes english. which you know hey at least they did that for us. Oh, um, yeah. But I will say, um, it was starting to get on my nerves probably about 30 minutes in where I was just, like, it just, to me, I was enjoying when we, like, went from reading something to Francis McDormand giving us uh, a in- interpretation to the dog speaking English. But when it started moving back and forth and there was no rhythm to it to me, in my opinion, it just kind of moved kind of herky-jerky throughout these different ways of explaining or, or communicating to the audience. I just 
<laughs> it wasn't that I was angry, but I was just wanting to sit and enjoy this Wes Anderson film and not have to keep changing the way I'm not have it interpreted rece- to you. receiving what this film is trying to say. Right. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm all for subtitles and different languages. Yeah. But I feel like something like, um, why am I drawing a blank right now? Quinn Tarantino. Glorious Bastards. Yeah. Inglorious Bastards is very clear in its rhythm between the different languages. Mm-hmm. And it, it's always giving you subtitles where here it just seems like the presentation changes so much that it's hard to really get a, good rhythm moving throughout the film i'm really kind of at a loss as to why well no i i do understand why they chose not to use subtitles because they sort of play it for humor between um atari like talking to the dogs and the dogs being like i wish somebody could understand his language there's multiple points like that but what yeah uh, outside of that 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 one sort of joke i felt like this film could have been really better carried with subtitles instead of just having an interpreter always like talking over these people and trying to like condense as to what is happening for sure here's the thing about the whatever you want to call it right the 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 structure therein of who gets subtitles who gets translated who you know just speaks plain english um one thing i got confused about was toward the end Mm -hmm. there's a scene in which uh, Atari is talking to Spots and Chief when they're going to do the switcheroo, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. Chief become his new handler or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, Atari is crying as if he's understanding every word mm-hmm. of what Spots is saying. And I, just... and I will fight anybody who says otherwise, like, that he's just crying because he understands it. Like, yeah. He's just empathic, dude. I. It's just like... It, by the end of the movie, I feel like Wes Anderson was Wait, losing. Hold on, hold on, he just, hold on. Let's, let's, just let's, gave up. Let's back up here just a second. You're saying he's crying when Spots is talking to him? Yeah. yeah. And like Spot is, Spots is delivering a lot of exposition mm-hmm. before he even gets to the idea of like the switch. And Atari's just crying. And now, I know that... Now they have the thing where they can understand each other, right? Oh, that's what that was? I thought that's so that they could talk to each other. Right. Mm. No, but like... Which, which I think that's... Oh. Right, I I thought it was literally like talking, not to like understand each other, but to like give commands. Oh, okay. I thought it was so they could. No, understand I, I guess each that other. makes more sense. But like, also, yeah. this movie's kind of fucking weird. That I I like <laughs> this movie's kind of fucking weird. If, if right? I couldn't completely <laughs> grasp that on a first watch, because I don't think I'm an idiot. Like, no. I just think that that that's how that's where Anderson cheek can get in his own way. Mm. Where I thought it was just a stupid detail of, and maybe it was. I mean, that t- to me that was. I mean, I guess it makes I sense. That's why it. he would have a microphone. Yeah. Because otherwise, yeah, yeah. I guess that makes sense. Uh, um, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> why? Why don't? Why don't they give these to cats? Why don't? Anyway. Um. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm gonna table that one for a second uh-huh. here. But the other thing I am gonna mention is that I genuinely think Anderson did this, or I should say. Um, had this uh, inconsistency as to who gets what as far as what treatment because one of his most unpopular films from critics was The Darjeeling Limited and in that movie there are people of uh, you know Indian 
I don't know what word I was going to follow that with. Ethnicity. Ethnicity. There yes. we go. Of, I was going to say a random thing like Indian stripes or. <laughs> please Indian, don't. You should have just not. Indian descent. You should have you just not. My brain was frying, okay? Yeah. The point is I'm not racist because I was trying not to say it. <laughs> Indian stripes. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, but in that no, no, movie. They're, they're Indian. Jesus was not. Oh. He could have been. Hey, hey. Continue, Nick. Um, just okay. Nobody listens to this podcast. No, not really. Um, but in for that, what's her name? Caroline. Uh, Caroline listened to it, and G- Gina, who just sent yeah. us. Uh, yeah. So anyway, Darjeeling um, Limited. Darjeeling Limited yeah. is one of his most unpopular films, and I actually think it's actually one of his most underrated. Like, I think it's fantastic, uh, mm-hmm. and it's a un- misunderstood masterpiece. But. In that movie, you had uh, people speaking non-English uh, with just subtitle translation, and I genuinely think the c- further he gets into his career, the 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 more he gets too comfortable in his little bubble, and the less he's willing to make concessions for his erratic style. What's up? Nothing. Okay. Um, so like when he was a younger, fresher filmmaker, he may have taken that chance and just thought, well, we should just have these, you know, actors and whatnot, uh, say it in their dialect and in their own language. But now that I'm like, in my opinion, you know, I think now he's got carte blanche to make what he wants for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knows what's failed and what hasn't. Like, I, I just think that that's proof positive that. He doesn't want anything to get in the way of his aesthetic, and that's okay to a degree, but it's also kind of uncomfortable because he is a good filmmaker, so he could make it work with Japanese subtitles. Like He just he, chooses not to exactly. make the effort to. And when you see a movie well, like... Well, and then also, too, you have to make sure you're having the correct Japanese words. Yeah. <laughs> And but then the other thing too though is then when you get to a movie like this and I guess maybe this is foreshadowing my thoughts but then it's like was it really worth it like was all that run around uh, worth the inevitable hot takes and whatnot which I'm not even saying this movie is like cultural appropriation because I have mixed thoughts about that in general yeah but like nothing about what he did here in that uh, in that area leaped off the screen to me as some kind of essential Wes Anderson uh, element that it just baffles me that he goes this far out of his way to cater to his own sensibilities. Do you think, uh, I already know my thoughts on this, but do you think uh, that he wanted to make sure that his first film after Grand Budapest Hotel, which was probably his most mainstream film and most well-received film, uh, was not mainstream. No, abs- uh, wait, was not mainstream? Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say was mainstream. Really? Yeah, because okay. people don't like subtitles. And if he really wanted it to be, he would have he would have let the characters existed in their natural uh, home state and uh, speak the language that they probably would have. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I get the whole barks are rendered in English, haha, mm-hmm. and whatnot, because you got to still tell a story. But mm-hmm. in general, this is... Uh, this is Japan spoon-fed to people who have read a 
AFI top 100 Japanese films list. Like this is yeah. this is just so hilariously inept in its hodgepodge of influences and didactic ticks that it just becomes a, a silly caricature of not Japanese culture, though you could say it is if that's what you're arguing. But I was just going to say of Wes Anderson's take uh, on Japanese take. Culture. I would say take on cultures that are just outside of his own. Like, mm. like he can. The Darjeeling Limited is not perfect in its uh, representation of that country and whatnot. Mm. But that take is at least I would say slightly more mild and measured because the only in my opinion, the only real wrong thing with that movie is that it's because it's about three white guys that have huge breakthroughs in the idyllic setting of this oh. otherness yeah. country, whatnot. They had to they had to go someplace else in order to find their yes. way back home. But I also think that like I'd rather Wes Anderson do that than because that. It, if he's going to write a movie about a white guy cluelessly stumbling into somebody else's culture and learning about himself, that is way more authentic mm -hmm. than Wes Anderson trying to say, I like Japanese culture. Here's my proof. Like, it's just kind of, <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway. do you want to just go into Yeah, I mean, those are, those are pretty much pretty my much thoughts. Uh, in general, I thought this was a real mixed bag. I thought that from start to finish, I was certainly enjoying it. But nothing really worked here for me in, mm. in a sense that, like, every decision that was made, I wasn't sitting there going, nope, no, 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 no. But it never really once jumped off the screen, and this felt like the perfect and most cringeworthy uh, example of, like, somebody coming up to me who hates Wes Anderson and then me going, like, tugging my collar and go, well, I got nothing. <laughs> um, it, it just, it was a little uncomfortable in that aspect. But I, there are some funny jokes. Uh, there are some great visuals. Like, there are things that I come to expect from Anderson. So, therefore, I, I liked it. But I also wouldn't say that it moved me in any way that I would say any other Anderson film. And, I guess I was slightly disappointed because for me, Fantastic Mr. Fox is one of his better films, mm -hmm. and I love what he did with stop motion in that movie with the wonderful uh, mixing of the texture of the fox's fur against the grass and the gravel of the farmland and whatnot. No, that comes through here. No, I, this didn't really need to be stop motion. Like, it was cute, and it looked amazing, mm -hmm. but there was nothing about this that made me want to, like, almost reach through the screen and play with the set, mm -hmm. you know? And I feel like that's what was missing, which is what I felt in uh, something like Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, and like Toussaint said earlier, this would have benefited if he would have just given full into his clear inspiration, if you're going to name someone Watanabe, uh, and 2D hand-draw, if not hand-draw, but computer-animate this you know, drawing right. style. It, it looks, it looked good for whatever yeah. samples. And it, 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 it can you imagine something like this in a in a style reminiscent of something like uh, what we just saw recently with the the tale of Princess Kaguya? Like, yeah, you know, just something like kind of I wouldn't say understated, but mm -hmm. something free flowing and yet uh, extremely uh, picturesque and yeah. I, th I think that at. he could definitely do that. I. I just sort of pivoting into my thoughts, mm -hmm. my, mine are nowhere near as in depth um, as as Nick's because Nick 
is pretty much the authority on Wes Anderson, at least in this in this context. I like white people. I, I don't know what it is about them. But. <laughs> Dear white people, um, I, I've heard great things about the Fantastic Mr. Fox. I know that that's his first and only other animated film, and I know that has like very rave like ratings in, in, in itself, just within his canon of film, but also just as an animated film in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So I was looking forward to seeing like Isle of Dogs just off the reputation of what I know of, of Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I'm somebody who I love animation. I, I love animation from... As like, you say, at this table, yeah, you, you like, like it the most. Yeah, I like it the most. It's like I like 2D animation. I like stop motion animation. I like animation that plays with different mediums and different focuses and stuff like that. I, I'm... I'm I'm we vi- call you duck and muck when you're not around. I shut the fuck up. <laughs> I very much enjoy the craftsmanship that goes into animation and I always appreciate the people and like with this I like stop motion animated films. There wasn't really anything in this to echo Nick sentiment that made me want to like reach out and like play with the actual set. There were no intricate tableaus of how things are arranged in such a way that really foregrounded the time that went into like making them. I think like the first initial shot that shows this person who is like lighting candles on a ceremony, like that was the first little thing for me where I was just like, okay, I really like that. I like those intricate little details that probably took like fucking hours to put into because I, I appreciate the, 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 the work that goes into making those scenes happen. And I think like my appreciation, my appreciation of the details of this film immediately stopped as soon as Atari crashed onto the Isle of Dogs and shows the meteor crater with him like stumbling out because just like seeing the uh, the layers of of trash as they are being impacted and him like wandering around that I thought that was cool that was a cool shot but everything else just sort of like totally went over my head and I didn't really care for it anymore it didn't it, it didn't impact me or, or or leave me with a with a a it didn't leave me with sort of an appreciation of what were probably the countless man hours that went into it. Not even like the, the, the sakura blossoms falling off the trees in the, 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 the one haiku scene that Atari is doing at the end. Because even though I thought that might have been really cool on its own, it's like it just the way that it was framed, the way that it was paced, it, it just didn't uh, – there's, there's, there's really not a lot for me to like really grasp onto for this film. Like I just – I. I, I, I left out, and I was just like, that was a movie. That was a film. Yeah. So. Yeah. One thing I want to say is something to what you're saying, too, is that when you just said when he crashed on the Isle of Dogs, you know, what's interesting about that is that this whole endeavor, uh, as far as a directorial project goes, mm-hmm. reminds me of what people said about Tarantino when he made The Hateful Eight and shot it in uh, Panavision 70 millimeter, but set his movie in, in one, one place. In one place, and in my opinion, I think he succeeded. Like he showed at least me and everybody else. And I know I love one room films, mm-hmm. but he did do something evocative with that wide angle in these cramped spaces and whatnot. Whereas I don't think Wes Anderson ever fully overcame the very drab and boring locale of the Isle of Dogs itself. Uh, it had amongst... these very eccentric, like, sort of, like, landscapes that were paced out of it, but yeah. I didn't really have a... That doesn't mean that, like... Uh, like a connectiveness as to what the ge- geography are... of that was. Yeah. Yeah. With, with, with Hateful Eight, at least, like, every single quadrant of that space 
albeit one location, has something distinct about it, whether it's a chair or the jelly beans that are just like scattered across like the the floor yep. or the pot the, of coffee. The pot of coffee. Yeah, yeah. like there's always yeah. these these But this was a very and it's very Wes Anderson, so it's like it's also like how do I criticize it? But this is a very Wes Anderson take on um, montage over breathing room when it comes to showing the it, we call it geographic mm-hmm. or just the layout of because these characters are walking like left to right ninety nine percent of the time, mm-hmm. and like it looks cute on a individual scene by scene basis when you like think back on it does any one of these set pieces really stand out uh above and i say that as something like fantastic mr fox does a lot of the same thing but for me at least there's a difference between the amazing sequence where um fantastic mr fox robs the chicken farm when it goes from literally the side of the frame and he does an entire heist in one shot only to get to the other end. Uh, comparing that to something like the wide-angle view of the underground safe haven that they've created after the flooding of their farmland. Like, mm-hmm. little things like that. Like, those are all distinct and uh, tableau-like uses of this wide. But here, it, it sounds like it's an easy joke to make, but it just always looked like trash. Um, that's fair. And I mean that literally. Yeah. Not, yeah. Like to try to actually criticize it. But yeah. like you have to work even harder to make that look good. And I – yeah. So anyway. Um, this is a really small critique and it's yeah. actually something that I, I liked. But I felt like it got a little old at the end where every time there was any kind of skirmish just had the usual everything flying around in a cloud, which happened like six times throughout this film. Yeah. And I feel like – what else you got? Um, yeah, it's clear that he probably has because as a director, you got to give your team, even if they're the ones who know what they're doing and know how to do what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, he still, and clearly, I just think he cannot possibly think about action whatsoever. Uh, and because he did it in Fantastic Mr. Fox, but because that was the first movie he did it in, it was kind of funny. Like he thought it was just a gag, but now he's doing that like he does it even more in this movie yeah. and yet it's also like oh okay and again uh, like the first two times I'm like oh that's kind of fun and yeah. then by the end I'm like this is this I mean like, it... we need to end this scene so cloud yeah <laughs> cloud with people flying around in it oh, God. um so let's head on the actual story and some of the dialogue here is as as with most Wes Anderson films, the story is for the most part extraordinarily simple. Mayor Kobayashi. Yeah, um, you know, lost boy, lost dog, trying to find lost dog. I mean, I know there is a lot more around it, but at the end of the day, that's the actual crux of the story. It's like cartoon Homer Bound. Nah, Homer Bound is better. Oh dear. Uh, so at any rate, um, I, I feel like I'm I'm with you, Nick, in terms of. The, the way of, of the characters and um, move at like the whole thing of them moving left to right, I think that that comes out in the story as well, is that there's a lot of just moving from scene to scene. Even, there's nowhere else for this story to go mm-hmm. other than where it's going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and even though I quite enjoyed a lot of it, and, um, the, and not that he hasn't done this before, but um, the use of the English language here I thought was, for the most part, fantastic. A lot of... Silly 
double meaning uh, phrases said here. Uh, there's something about um, something about a garbage can, but then there uses a different word at the end of that instead of can. I can't remember what it was, but there was quite a few of those, especially early on in the film when I felt like a lot of his silly wit came out. Um, and that is definitely something about it not being an R-rated film is you have to try a little harder to have yeah. well-placed jokes. Um, and I feel like this film somewhat did it. Uh, and at some points, too, just kind of fell flat. I think a lot of the dialogue here, honestly, um, felt uninspired to me. Like, I feel like they just all showed up one day, read their lines, and went home. Would these jokes be as funny as they are? Because I think some of them are genuinely funny mm-hmm. if it wasn't for the voice actors. For example, the running gag of Jeff Goldblum being the gossip dog. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll admit that I kind of laugh, like, almost harder each time. Every time he said, oh, you guys know about that. What do you like, hear about all these rumors? And right. I'm just like, oh, I, just, I just hear them. I, I love gossip. But, like, there's really nothing to that runner at all other than it's just Jeff Goldblum saying it in his perfect Jeff Goldblum voice. Apparently also Jeff Goldblum uh, called in to record his line. Um, that was wow. actually pretty not pretty common but uh, when Wes Anderson makes one of these uh, stop motion one it kind of happened with Fantastic Mr. Fox too. Mm-hmm. So for I'll just say this. I've not I, I'm not completely up to date with production history and whatnot, but there are rumblings and I'm sure it, it literature that exists online that basically say that what makes him a great live action director is actually what makes him a horrible uh, stop motion animated director because mm-hmm. he can't do stop motion himself. Right. And he basically, especially with at least Fantastic Mr. Fox, I read something that basically said that he was a tyrant and like, because he had no idea what he's doing, but mm-hmm. he knows what he wants it to look like. Right. He was insane to work with and he was like calling the studio, but never actually going in mm-hmm. because he'd be like off recording a babbling brook or something, mm-hmm. you know, to get that whatever. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's such a thing. Like I can imagine him in his, in his plaid tweed right. pants and, and his loafers yeah. just like hunkered over a babbling brook with like some recording equipment and his headphones just alone yeah. hold, cradling a phone on his shoulder like it doesn't look the way I want it to yeah but like and they said that but like he was because he was so unfamiliar with the medium itself he did not have a way to articulate what he wanted mm-hmm. in a reasonable or realistic way. Yeah. And there were like just way too much overtime. And I'm like just, that. oh man, I'm just imagining Daniel Day Lewis in Phantom Thread, like having to be in a profession that he is not comfortable with and just having to deal with it. Yeah. Like, like he's like got to be an auto mechanic and they're like, what the fuck are you doing? I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Clearly you don't. <laughs> Whoever invented that word should be taken out and spanked in public. It's fucking cheek. I mean, what did that even mean? <laughs> Meanwhile, I got some guy named Rusty just looking at him like, it, we're doing oral changes here, bro. <laughs> uh, so, also, really quick, though, yeah. since you just said that, but I know for a fact Wes Anderson must have at least said a million times in his life, the uh, the tea is leaving the room. The distraction is staying right here with me. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. That is, that is anyway. Yeah. So in terms of the actual final product in the story, I mean, we have a lot of ups and downs here, I guess, but um, the story is very simple as pretty much per usual. Um, 
and involves a lot of the usual Wes Anderson themes. Um, what did you guys think about it? Yeah. Uh, so th- there's a lot going on here. So what's interesting is that he takes a running joke throughout his career and he builds a movie uh, around the premise that says, no, I'm not, which is that a lot of people have noticed that in his movies, dogs end up dead. Like, and not just like they die at of old age. Like in Royal Tenenbaums, uh, the family dog gets run over at a really critical moment in the family's life in an extremely depressing manner. Um, uh, Moonrise Kingdom, the dog gets shot. And those are the only two that are coming to my head, but it, it is a prevalent thing. Um, so here he makes an entire movie uh, literally called I Love Dogs, where it's all about a boy and his love for a dog and, and vice versa. I got to say, I, I'm a person who grew up with dogs in his household since before I was born. Well, I should say since I was born, basically. Like, the dogs started with me. Um, in fact, I'm going to tell a little funny story. Because Please I'm, do. Sorry, but <laughs> indulge me. We only kept our very first dog because my mom brought me home from the hospital mm-hmm. after I stayed there after I was born for a month because mm-hmm. I needed help breathing. Mm-hmm. And so my dad, because he's not very smart, brought home a dog to my mother on the first day that she brought me home, a baby <laughs> that barely could live. Yeah, okay. So my mom was like, what the fuck, fuck is like, this? This is the stupidest idea ever. Yeah. I shouldn't hate dogs. Yeah. He also <laughs> brought some weird meat he bought it from somebody yeah, in the street. but he did that when I was an adult, so... <laughs> it makes it better. Yeah. Um, but yeah, him and, you know, at the time, my little three-year-old brother were like, look at this dog. We brought him home, and he thought he was being a, you know, a nice guy. And yeah. I was like, this is literally the worst thing you could possibly do right now, because yeah. I don't give a fuck about a dog, whatever. And that dog, who ended up being our family's dog for 15 years until it died, yeah. we kept it because... That dog on my very first night would lay in my room, even though he did not know us as a family, mm-hmm. as I was breathing. And that dog would run to my mother 10 to 20 to maybe 30 seconds before my machines would go off mm-hmm. because it would be able to sense when I wasn't breathing mm-hmm. before the machines weren't able oh. to. And then, like, my mom was literally not able to get rid of a dog. Right. That, you know, whatever. So I am like the first person who will be here for a man's best friend movie if, right. if done right, because mm-hmm. I, that's just always been in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to say, though, this just didn't really feel like a particularly good one. Um, mm-hmm. There were some cute moments. Like, I love the moment where Atari wants to uh, go on the slide and, <laughs> and, oh, Chief, yeah. and Chief is just not having it whatsoever. But like that in and of itself is like a parent joke, not really a dog joke. And I felt like because Wes Anderson clearly has never met a dog, um, the set... (laughs) I wanted the dog to look like this. You know what a dog looks like? Yeah, why want you to make it? I want you to kill the actual dog. I gotta gotta go record some trash. (laughs) Rustling in the wind. Yeah. Um... But no, but because I'm not convinced <laughs> that Wes Anderson has met a dog. <laughs> Literally, he runs the other way. Oh, my like, God. You want a pet? No! <laughs> uh, anyway. I don't think Wes Anderson's ever ran in his life. That's probably true. Yeah. Um, somebody tried to make him do it in middle school one day, and he went over and cried in the corner and <laughs> put on a scarf. I don't much care for that. Yeah. <laughs> you say, I could, but what if I just walk really fast? So... 
But yeah, because I'm not convinced. Otherwise, I feel like we would have seen a little more compassion in his previous films. I, I did feel that the central relationship was a little hollow. Like, I was more invested in Atari and Spot's relationship, even though that gets sidelined because of what needs to be the real relate, which is, you know, Chief and him. And I don't know, it just never really... Uh, I've just there. There's been other movies before where, like, I'd be like, "This is a stupid movie," but then because the dog was being cute and because I believed the owner, like, like last year there was a movie called uh, Megan Levy, which starred Kate Mara, uh, and based on the real story of a real soldier who basically started a train and started to love this German shepherd in the army and wanted to take him home with her because he was being discharged, but it was going to be like put down for no real reason. Cause the army is a crazy place. Uh, and like that movie's not a very good movie, but like I watched it from start to finish. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, she likes that dog. That dog likes her. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just like one of those things that here I felt like all of Atari and chief's relationship was very much only, existed to serve or not even to serve but to be reactionary pieces to other developments like chief only really grows to like atari because a bitch tells him to and literally literally, literally. and you know spots only uh gives up his you know position to chief because he got a bitch pregnant and <sighs> Like I'm being kind of glib, but I'm also not in the. But sense you're really that, not because that's how they're referred to in the yeah. actual film. So if there was a stronger through current of the two of them growing to like each other, and I think that's the pitfall of a ensemble piece like this because we keep getting those scenes of all five of us. Well, we're a group. We take a group vote, you know. Um, when really there only needs to be two characters that need to be focused on. Um, I, I just feel like this movie is such a mixed bag that it unfortunately never really supports uh, most of the central relationships it wants to. Mm-hmm. You know, it it just I would say by the end it got a little rough. Rough. Oh yeah, yeah. I went there. Yeah. I think he pretty much just said everything that <laughs> needed to be said about this film. Yeah. I'm pretty much in full agreement with you on this. Like I just. I didn't really connect to. Are we are we going to ratings here? By the way, uh, sure. I do. You want to? We can. Uh, yeah. I, you're 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 looking like you're heading that direction. I so. didn't really connect with any of these characters. I like some of the sound design. Like the visuals are are cool. Like there is one scene. I mean, I, I will to backtrack to my to my previous point where I thought that like the intricacies of of the the production design sort of like fell flat for me is like i don't think it was necessarily atari's like crash landing that was the last part i think like the last moment was in the bottle cavern when when chief goes out and he's actually lit by the the light of the nearby bottle cavern yeah that was my favorite that was cool like and then there was nothing else after Mm -hmm. that that really like attracted me to that Mm um i gotta say i'm i'm kind of on the fence about this film like i think that it's a it's a technically well-made well-produced film but it just doesn't hammer any sort of like impression to me whatsoever i i I liked this film i would not recommend this film that's the weird place to be so i guess i'd have to place it at a two and a half Mm -hmm. two and a half out of five yeah i mean it's it's 
It's all right. Yeah. It. It. I. I'm. I'm. I. I. Saying this as someone who has only seen three other films by him and remembered only two of them. I'm <laughs> sure that he has made something better than this. I. I want to go back and watch the Fantastic Mr. Fox, really, and 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 see where it all. Where did where did this begin? Where did it all go wrong? Yes. So yeah. So I was a fan of this. Um, I, I as I've mentioned. Uh, Throughout this uh, episode, I, I had some problems here, but mm. I thought this was right in the same wheelhouse of the whimsical enjoyment that Wes Anderson usually brings to me when I watch his films. Um, I don't necessarily think that this is a masterpiece or anything like that, but um, there wasn't really anything here that that made me feel like I, I didn't like this. I, I thought that there was plenty of good dialogue and plenty of interesting moments throughout um, that even with a very simple story um, kept me intrigued um, from start to finish. So I give this a three and a half out of five. I, I know Wes Anderson's done better work. In fact, I give two of his films and maybe I actually give three of his films a better rating uh, that I've seen. And I haven't seen all of them uh, as we talked about earlier, but um, yeah, I, I thought this was still quite enjoyable and um Right in the same wheelhouse of, of a lot of other Wes Anderson films, even if it's not his best. Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm right down the middle with this movie. Um, mm-hmm. I, I probably give it what seems like a harsh rating for someone who claims to love Wes Anderson, but it's mostly because I've seen all of his movies, uh, and I can comfortably say this is the least moved I've been by any of them. So it's easily my least favorite. Mm-hmm. But I, I stress that phrase, least favorite, meaning that I still enjoyed watching it and. If someone watched or wanted to watch it, I would watch it again and whatnot. But this will probably be the first time that a Wes Anderson movie is going to come out to home video, and I will comfortably wait for the Criterion release instead of like buying Ooh. it and then like buying it three or four years later when because uh, they have like a home in-house deal with him and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this movie is clearly. Uh, a good illustration of how you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And, <laughs> um, I'm sorry, I'll put a pause on this. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, I give this two and a half out of five. And overall, it's very much what Wes Anderson does best. But sometimes that's also what makes him one of the most infuriating directors mm-hmm. of all time. So, yeah. He refuses to play like anything other than his strengths. Yeah, I, I, don't know, I just feel like the movie's all bark, no bite. Yeah, it's like skipping leg day your entire career. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Great biceps, horrible legs. Okay. So if you out there have any thoughts on Isle of Dogs or Isle of Dogs, you can uh, get in touch with us at filmtankshow at gmail.com or you can... Make sure to go to Google Translate, though, because we won't understand you without it. <laughs> Or you can find us at Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Tank Show. So, coming oh. up on our next episode... Oh, what's coming up next? We're oh, going to talk about the biggest Marvel film ever made. Ant-Man! <laughs> That's awesome because we didn't even... Oh my god! Oh my god! Ant-Man! You didn't even really try to do that. that no, great. we didn't. <laughs> so anyways, Infinity War, the oh. first... Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. The first, uh, and I'm sure there will be the second Infinity War, even though they're trying to call it something different. Sure. 
But uh, this More is like Infinity Bore. Oh, someone's gonna die in that movie. You know, actually, what was good about that is that uh, Odin's father from Thor is named Bore. So <laughs> you, you that's why even... I said it. Sure. Oh. Okay. <laughs> at any rate, uh, at any rate. Um, <laughs> at any rate. Yeah, I was just <laughs> failing there. Um, <laughs> Words to twist. <laughs> Don't make fun of him. He actually had to have a dialect coach come in for Han Solo. So. <laughs> His name was Ray Fox. <laughs> That's amazing. What, what are you doing? With, no, no. Put those down. You're speaking with an animal who doesn't speak English. This should not be very difficult. <laughs> You're 190. You look great. Oh, you're already quoting the trailers. Yeah. They took 100 takes of that to get to that. <laughs> um, so in... Infinity War has been where Marvel's been going the entire time, really, since probably... Avengers 1. Uh, Here's before the thing. that, I think, even. As um, someone who's not a Marvel superhero, whatever, what makes this special... Okay, besides the premise, which I get, like, everybody's here, but... Except for Clint Barton. What? Except for Clinton Barton. Except for that person. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what? how come this excitement was not... As big as it was for Avengers: Age of Ultron, like um, what was it about Ultron that even before the movie came out that people and I know it was a big movie, like people saw it and whatnot, but it does not feel like people were in any way hyped for that movie in the same way that this one is. Is it just because it's um, got the war premise? I think it was because it was Joss Whedon's <laughs> second take at the Avengers formula, and we had high expectations because he was able to pull off Avengers? Yeah, but that would be before. So that would mean that it would be good, like good hype, I'm saying, mm-hmm. beforehand. I'm... I mean... Are you trying to... What, I'm saying what is... What is the hype of this film respective to, to that of when, that? when uh, Ultron was coming out, how come I did not see the same amount of brouhaha? Of well, like, I mean... I've seen ridiculously stupid tumblr and twitter posts so like people outlining rules for their girlfriends what the uh, fuck yeah of like what they can or cannot do during the movie when they're watching (laughs) it in the theater yeah oh yeah Yeah, but you can this is a viral you can you can go to the movie by yourself so yeah girlfriend anymore at any rate no uh, touching no asking questions yeah Anyway. The Thanos thing has been going on since the first Thor. So. Has it, though? Yes. Yeah. yes. I mean, I know literally. Thanos <laughs> has been going on since... Um, uh, and he's really... Are all... people excited for that, though? No, they're not. People they are, are excited because all their action figures are on the table together, and they're going to smash them together, and it's going to look cool. And it turns out one or more Deadpool of them... got to it first. One or more of them might die, and that's kind of cool. Uh, I swear to God, I'm not ready to live. We've waited this long for these films to finally have stakes. But they come out every year. Yeah, but they're going to have stakes. But that's stakes. the problem. There's been 19 you know of them with, with, with Quicksilver dying. Okay, but here. Uh, which which I know you were fine with because you hate Aaron Taylor Johnson. That's true. Um, but I got to say, I, I, I... Oh, really quick, since we brought up Deadpool, mm-hmm. I, I'm not ready to live in a world where the... That's just lazy writing. GIF is going to be put everywhere whenever somebody doesn't like a movie or a TV show. What GIF are you talking about? I just meant the GIF that will be made of Deadpool look in the trailer for the new movies. Uh-huh. It he has the line that's just lazy writing. Oh wow! Okay. I'm just saying like yeah. that's like I'm I'm fully expect that to just flood my timeline. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sure. No, I mean the the whole Thanos storyline. I mean, it, I think the the bigger thing is is Thanos, who we've really only seen 
in non post credit scenes, which were all awful. Um, he always changed his color. Yeah, he was purple. Then now he's pink, and he was, then he's, then he's like, sort of indigo blue. But then yeah, he's, he's not transracial. But then he turns into a Jolly Rancher. <laughs> but um, he really only appears uh, really in Guardians of the Galaxy prior to this. Um, as he's kind of a major character in that, but not really. Yes. As he, he, in the, at the very in the least, film. characters acknowledge that he exists. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. like, it's so well, funny how, like, nobody else, like... It's I, part I, of Drax's whole arc, like, he wants to kill he this is, person. He is, and also he is Nebula and Gamora's father. Right. And, and that's why yeah. I will genuinely, as someone who doesn't like these movies, I will genuinely be disappointed if one of them is not involved. I would say if nobody in the Guardians crew does not end up being the one to kill him because... I mean, it's been... I know it's been foreshadowed, but I also yeah. could see Marvel saying, well, no, I mean, Tony's got a quick the detonator. <laughs> <laughs> he's, got, he's got to, because, you know... You he's, can't tell me that the, like that Iron would Man. never happen. He's Iron Man. I mean... These films really, in all honesty, if you, in terms of what I'm remembering, and I'm sure I'm forgetting plenty of things, but Marvel really, in terms of actual hard-lined foreshadowing, does not really put itself in a corner too many times. It likes to leave itself open. Yeah. So the like hard-lined foreshadowing of Drax killing Thanos is... If you just had that just for fun, and then, well, we feel differently now, so we're just going to forget about that. All I'm saying is I would not be surprised. Oh, no, I would either. Okay. Yeah. No. Um, I don't think we're going to see it here, because I don't think Thanos is going to die in this movie. Because oh, no. we need him for the next one. Yeah. Because they have no more villains left. Yeah, and they couldn't get Josh Brolin to show up anyway, so <laughs> they need to try again. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That yeah. is, actually. That's great. Yeah. Because he had previous commitments to another Marvel film. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Because he's going to be uh, I'm still, the other guy. Robot guy. I'm still, yeah. Cable. I'm, Cable. And more Deadpool films. Three more. I was like, three more Deadpool films. Man, I can't. I, I can. I can wait. Yeah. I, can, <laughs> I can't wait. I I can wait. Why is this happening? Yeah. Um, obviously, I've been very vocal that I, I just hope that. Hugo Weaving as Red Skull shows up in some way, shape, or fashion. It would totally make sense. One can hope. It makes sense. It does. It does actually make sense he, given his last he appear, fl- appearance. He, he shoots away into the Rainbow Thor thing. Yeah. Uh, which we don't know where the fuck he's been. Right. Yeah. He could. I'm telling you, he could be like working with Thanos. Just saying. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, uh, we'll see about all that on our next episode, and um, we'll somewhat in-depth about uh, the Infinity Stones and the Infinity War and hopefully Marvel taking that whole thing and just throwing that in the trash and saying, well, no one gave a shit about this anyway. So yep. here we go. On the next episode of Film Tank, we're reviewing Infinity War and one of the three hosts will die. It wow. might be Nick. That is somewhat morose. <laughs> Sorry. Huh. Thanks for fucking spoiling it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Do you think at one point during Infinity War, like toward the end, like Thanos is going to get pissed off and be like, okay, the gloves are coming off. Why aren't you writing these films? I don't know. <laughs> I ask them every day like, and they say, sir, I this can't. is a Dairy Queen. Please get out of the drive-thru. Oh, my God.
Yeah, I um, I'm fully. God, I just don't know what this is going to be. Yeah, <laughs> no one does. It's going to be two hours and thirty minutes of just chaos throughout because they've got thirty six characters jammed in here and nobody knows what to do with them. I don't think so. There's no real through line story happening. I'm sure we're going to have a couple awkward Black Panther sequences that should have been cut, but instead were kept because that like, was so popular. Yeah, and I want to see another Black Panther movie. That's fine to want to see another Black Panther movie, but I don't want to see his deleted scene be reinserted yeah. over a more important scene just because He's we Black need Man. more Black Panther. Oh, yeah. 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 That's the other problem, too. It came in way too close proximity where they couldn't just go back and do reshoots where they're like... We're going to have Black Panther do this part instead of Iron Man. <laughs> I'm cool with that. But yeah, the, it's 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 uh, the release schedule for these things is kind of... Yeah, it sucks that they put themselves in a bit of a corner for that, but that's yeah, right. got to have multiple... Wait, what else is coming out this year for Ant-Man. Marvel? The fucking Ant- Ant-Man. Ant-Man and, and that's it. That's the first film after, yeah. after Avengers 3? It ha- it has to be take place beforehand. Yeah, that doesn't make fucking sense. It's yeah. got to. Yeah. yeah, they gotta kill Ant Man. <laughs> what? Oh, he's just getting uh, the the female. What's what's her name? The wasp. The wasp. The wasp. She's uh, coming in and, and a much more interesting character than him. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. yeah. So it'll just be the wasp, and, and I'm cool with that. And then Hank Pym is going to be there, putting his building into a little suitcase. Yeah, that's fun. <sighs> that's all they've got in those movies. Yeah. Just making things small. Yeah. Yep. But I like that. <laughs> so, from Nick Cheney. Hey. To Son Egan. Hey. I'm my, sorry. Hey. Myself, Alex Diekman. Hey. Thank you very much for joining us here at Film Tank, and we will be catching up with you next time. <laughs>